0: You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations. You'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we're about to take a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting as well. We can promise you this. You'll be the most interesting person at the party. On this edition of Commute. People love to think that they're getting a good deal on something. We all love sales, right? So why did J.C. JCPenney infamously take that away from us?
1: Sometimes having a revolutionary idea doesn't always mean that it's a good one. We discuss the six-month lifespan of the streaming service that almost no one knows about, a platform called Quibi.
0: And can a video game that allows us to live a fake life also help us better understand and alleviate homelessness? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, we could title this first segment, People Love Getting a Good Deal. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a friend's house, and my friend's dad was telling me how he scored an incredible deal on a new car. I believe his exact quote was, I got such a good deal on this car that I actually feel bad. I bet you that the salesman that sold me this car got fired. (laughs) But you (laughs) you see, Jay, here's the funny thing about this story. I knew the car salesman. So I randomly saw him sometime after I had that conversation with my buddy's dad, and I asked him if he remembered selling that car to him. And Jay, I believe his quote was something like this. Not only did I not get fired, I actually made an incredible commission off of that guy.
1: That's the, that's the game of a uh, good car salesman. They make you think that you ripped them off.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's just the way we're wired, right? Well, what do we make of a story like this? It leads us to this conclusion. It is deeply ingrained into all of us that we love at least thinking that we're getting a deal. We as a society love saving money so much that will ultimately spend more money just to save money. I'm looking at you, Kroger, two for ten dollar jumbo cheese ball containers. Which, by the way, here's the way Kroger works. And sorry if Kroger ever becomes a sponsor of this show. If it says it's two for ten, and you use your Kroger card, you can actually get one for five. So calling out Kroger already this early on the podcast. Well, I did. I did used to work at Kroger. We'll probably get into that on an episode uh, at a certain point. I don't
1: know if you uh, quite worked at Kroger. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. I, I, though
0: I pick it. I picketed at Kroger. But anyway, <laughs> Jay, a poll a few years back from the website Retail Me Not found that over 90% of shoppers actively look for and use some form of a coupon weekly. So it's important to know this as today we examine one of the worst failures in retail history, the JCPenney fair and square pricing structure of 2011, a mistake so bad that JCPenney is still feeling the after effects a decade later. So, Jay, all successful retailers in one way or another appeal to something called psychological pricing. This is an individualized strategy that a company will employ to drive sales in its particular market. A company like Apple, for example, uses word of mouth and slick marketing for their sales. You want the new iPhone because your friends have the new iPhone. You want an iMac computer because you saw a commercial for an iMac computer. And if you're ever going to live out your dream of being a famous documentarian, you're going to have to have an iMac to edit it on. Clothing retailers, on the other hand, traditionally rely on promotional pricing or coupons. If you've been eyeing a certain pair of jeans, for example, and those jeans go on sale for, say, 25%, you'll jump in your car and happily sit in traffic to save some money. Going back to the car story, we all love to feel like we're winning the pricing battle with the stores we shop in. In 2011, J.C. Penney had taken a dive in the eye of the American consumer. In an attempt to turn the ship around and boost sluggish sales, JCP hired former Apple retail chief Ron Johnson as its new CEO and then got rid of coupons and sales and adopted something new, something called the fair and square pricing model, meaning if jeans said they were 25 bucks, they were actually 25 bucks. no sales, no gimmicks. They hired Ellen DeGeneres, actually, to be the spokeswoman for the new campaign. And Ron Johnson promised to make JCPenney, and I'm quoting, America's favorite store. Well, Jay, instead, as New Yorker columnist James Surowiecki would write just two years later, it became America's favorite cautionary tale. Without any heads up or customer surveying, JCPenney initiated the previously mentioned pricing model, promptly changing its logo and store designs in the process and lost nearly all of its customers. The move had also called for the company to ditch its popular private label companies for higher-end items, meaning that it got rid of the tried-and-true brands that its customers preferred for more expensive styles, styles that its low-to-middle-income shoppers didn't like and honestly couldn't afford. In 2018, Mark Cohen from the Columbia Business School put it this way, Johnson walked away from the old audience and assumed that a new one would appear instantly from out of the blue. It didn't happen. Pennies fired Johnson just a year and a half after he was hired and re-implemented as fast as they possibly could the sales and comfortable brands, but Jay, the damage had been done. So while JCPenney probably still exists in your favorite mall, the retail giant isn't at all what it used to be. Now it's more business school cautionary tale than destination to go shop for Christmas.
1: I mean, it's all a dance, right? Like, we we know that brands aren't going to lower a price down to a point where they're going to lose money, but we kind of like the fiction that they are lowering it a little bit and that we're getting a deal that somebody else is not getting. Yeah, it reminds me of an, uh, an article that I actually read this week uh, with uh, NFL wide receiver L Patterson talking about how he basically bought all of his clothes at, you know, Wet Seal and Forever 21 and some of these types of stores. But since he was this famous NFL athlete, everyone just assumed that they were designer clothes. So Dave, you and I both are uh, fans of Streaming services, we both have a lot of them uh, at our disposal in our own homes, but there's one that we both never tried. Uh, One, because it never really was around that long, but two, because I don't think either of us would have found much use for it. And that is
0: a very little known streaming service named Quibi. For some reason, I thought you were going to say, Dave, you and I are both streamers. And it just doesn't... I don't want that title. It's a weird title to have. Yeah, that guy's a streamer. He, he has a bunch of streaming services. No, I, and I have a lot of thoughts about Quibi, and I'm not going to say much about it because you're about to tell us about it. One of the biggest problems with Quibi is there's so much competition. There were so many streaming services that already exist. The streaming services that launch now already have something that you probably want to watch. When Disney Plus launched, they sure, they have original shows. They also had the classic Disney shows. They had all these things that you were already happy to give your money away. Of, your money away for Quibby had nothing. I think they had a cooking show with Chrissy Teigen.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you about the Chrissy Teigen show. It was not a cooking show, but uh, it's uh, even more ridiculous than that. And yeah, you're right. I mean, the uh, the market has been flooded in recent years with streaming. It's the it's the gold rush of streaming, and there have been some success stories, but there's been many missteps and. Uh, We're going to look at probably the most short-lived of those missteps, a streaming platform called Quibi that tried to rebuild the nature of content consumption from the ground up. The experiment lasted six months and cost nearly $2 billion. So what happened? Well, at its launch, Quibi, which is short for Quick Bytes, was a pretty highly touted startup and attracted some of the biggest names in Hollywood to its early projects. And In the world of Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and Amazon Video, Quibi aimed to be unique. And the shows and movies on the platform served up shows in five to ten minute long chapters and were formatted to fit a smartphone screen. And the idea behind Quibi is that many of us consume content on the go rather than at home. And so we may be breaking up watching a 30 to 60 minute episode on the go anyway, so why not make that the central format of the content itself? So Quibi pointed to the quick rise of content platforms such as TikTok and Snapchat as evidence that this was an untapped market. And the push included offering high quality content to subscribers by signing only A-list Hollywood talent for their projects and for only $4.99 a month or $8 for no ads. The platform included a court show featuring Chrissy Teigen. Not a cooking show. She was like a Eh, judge or something. I think it was like a relationship court or something. I didn't get too deep into it. Uh, A romantic comedy starring Anna Kendrick, a thriller starring Sophie Turner of Game of Thrones fame, an action thriller starring Christoph Waltz and Liam Hemsworth, shows featuring talent like Kevin Hart and Jennifer Lopez, and Steven Spielberg, your boy, even got involved in an early project. And now early on, Quibi was met with skepticism, but many trusted the founders, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, to make the product work. Katzenberg was a Hollywood heavyweight who was the former chairman of Walt Disney Studios and the co founder of DreamWorks Animations, and he had a lot of connections in the industry. Well, so why did the platform fail in a very fast six months? Well, for one, the platform could not have debuted at a worse time. For a streaming platform built for a society on the go, the launch took place right in the middle of a time when we all stayed at home, the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Like, it's hard to imagine choosing to sit on your couch watching 10-minute segments of a show on your smartphone, right? Now, Katzenberg himself has said publicly that it isn't quite fair to put 100% of the blame on the pandemic, although it certainly didn't help. While Quibi did raise $1.75 billion from investors, it wasn't quite nearly the massive financial resources of the streaming heavy hitters like Netflix and Amazon. And Quibi also lacked a deep catalog of content enjoyed by services like HBO or Disney, like you said earlier, Dave. The service was essentially pitching all new content to the subscribers. Now, this can work if the content is engaging, but unfortunately, shows on Quibi were met with criticism pretty much across the board for not being quality content. Creators reported that the 5-10 to minute chapter format caused their content to suffer as well because writers and producers constantly had to edit content into these bite-sized pieces instead of just telling the story they want to tell. And Quibi also didn't allow screenshots, making buzz around shows hard to generate organically online. And Quibi had one Super Bowl ad months before launch, but past that, the service was very poorly marketed, and most people, frankly, didn't even know it existed, or if they did, didn't know what it was. And the difficulty in pulling our short attention span away is that there really are several things out there already vying for that attention. And Quibi wasn't necessarily competing with Netflix as much as they were competing with TikTok. And without the pull of great content, that just wasn't going to be a battle Quibi was going to win. And ultimately, Quibi failed to understand what it was, what people want, and how people use their phones. And on top of all of that, Rumors and problems behind the scenes between Katzenberg and Whitman persisted and the barriers to success were just too high and too many. Now, Quibi predicted a base of 7 million subscribers by the end of the first year, but at its height only attracted 1.3 million active users. And when the company was sold, held a mere 500,000 subscribers. And Katzenberg summed up the end of Quibi like this. We had a new product, and we asked people to pay for it before they actually understood what it was. I think we thought there would be an easier adoption, but in the end... We didn't get the support of consumers and customers in the way we had to to make this a successful business.
0: And, oh, hey, I'm sorry that I wasted your $1.7 billion <laughs> that, you, uh, that you guys gave us. Yeah, Quibi, it's funny. When I was a little kid, I always thought that adults were really smart. And then you become an adult and you're like, yeah, adults have no idea what they're doing. Like Katzenberg, you look at his, his resume. It's incredible. So, of course, you think he knows what he's doing. Quibby's such a bad idea. <laughs> like it's, it's indefensible, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a quote that I heard from Barack Obama uh, that I have not stopped thinking about since I heard it. And basically it was him talking about how as he moved up through society, like he became, you know, a mayor and then became a senator and then moved into being the president, that he kind of expected that everybody at the higher levels would just be like brilliant. You know, like as you move up the levels, it's just like everybody gets better and smarter. But what he realized is that he moved up through society is like, Pretty much every circle is the same. Like even these upper levels of society, you still have
0: people who are like kind of dumb or like make bad decisions or just like don't know what they're doing. Listen man, when your fourth project is Who Framed Roger Rabbit and your twenty-seventh project is the aforementioned on the show B movie, we expect more out of you. So, Jay, we shift from Quibi, the very, very small screen on your uh, phone, to a little bit of a bigger screen, your computer. Jay, can a video game that allows us to live a fake life also help us better understand and alleviate homelessness? Or is it simply more of an exercise in entertainment that is borderline cruel? I ask you that before we take a trip into the world of The Sims, Jay, when I was a kid, a at-the-time computer game was released that would go on to become one of the best-selling video game series of all time. The game at its core is about creating characters, building them homes, trying to find them romantic partners, and just overall building them a fake life. I am, of course, referring to the game The Sims. So while I'm sure that you loved The Sims, my limited relationship with it is contained to around 2000 and 2001. And this time period revolves around me putting in a cheat code for unlimited money and building my Sim family a mansion only to quickly get bored and move on from the game. All of that completely checks out. And uh, I mean, I did have a phase with the Sims. I
1: got to be honest. I'm going to use the podcast as a confession booth to confess that. Uh, my sister had a copy of the sims on our home pc and i was initially like really judgy about it you know i was like why would you play a game about living your life when you could just go out and live your life you know like that
0: kind of thing and then you found yourself but then yeah one time i was
1: like i'm gonna try it and i tried it and i got just so into it and so i was constantly like, coming in being like how much longer are you gonna be on the computer i need to get on and check my my sim family too so
0: my family's gotta eat
1: There was some, uh, I mean, it hooked me for sure. Like I was in on it for a little bit.
0: Well, believe it or not, Jay, and it's not news at all to the video game community, The Sims still exist. The latest version of Sims was released in 2014. And like many popular video games of today, it has taken on an open world format and a new life years after its initial release. At the heart of the ongoing appeal of the Sims game is the rise of player-created challenges on YouTube. So basically, this is someone with a popular YouTube account creating a challenge for all Sims players to participate in in the game, a wrinkle in the original design of the game. Some examples of this, Jay, would be the birth challenge, where players try to give birth to 100 Sims babies from 100 different partners which actually kind of ties into that uh, segment you did a couple episodes back about the guy that has all the kids. Yeah, I mean,
1: he's just kind of living out the challenge in real life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he learned about it on Sims. Uh, Another challenge is the Big Brother House Challenge, where you recreate the house from the reality television show Big Brother and try not to get voted out. And then the Runaway Teen, where you play as a Runaway Teen, and you try to survive life on your own without mommy or daddy. One of the latest and most interesting and maybe most controversial challenges, though, Jay, is the Sims Rags to Riches Challenge. In this challenge, players simulate being poor and homeless. They are instructed to dress their players as homeless people and set out to collect 5,000, I think you pronounce this, simoleons, which is the currency in the game of Sims, giving them enough money to build a modest house. The players must do this without any shelter or without getting a job, even though they can pick up odd jobs like fishing or, and I'm not making this up, selling rocks. Players that like and support this challenge say that it's an eye-opening experience for the difficulties of our real homeless population, even though they don't go so far as to say that it's a perfect representation of homelessness. And with a 2020 report by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development saying that nearly 570,000 homeless people live in the U.S., a number that I'm sure has risen during the pandemic, it is an issue that more people deal with and more people need to understand. But is this challenge on the video game actually helpful to that cause? Are we reading into it too much? Or could it be considered a cruel exploitation? While this type of setup obviously makes the game hard, it lacks many of the aspects of real life, right? While you can die of hypothermia in The Sims, you cannot get sick enough to pass away. Common illnesses are the common cold, rabies, or a fake illness where your head gets huge and steam comes out of your ears. The weather in The Sims game does add an element of realism to the challenge, though. More homeless deaths occur in the U.S. due to the condition of cold stress than anything else, according to the scientific journal Plus One. Critics say, Jay, that while things like this aren't criminal, they're just done in poor taste. Nan Roman, the president and CEO of the nonprofit Alliance to End Homelessness, told Wired magazine that she's just not a fan. The homeless challenge and content produced around it is very disappointing, said Roman. Homelessness is not a game. It's an epidemic. Jay, real life is complicated. We know this. A game obviously cannot simulate what it's really like to be human or to be homeless. And with the purpose of a game being a fun escape from reality and The Sims never pretending to be a good way to learn about any social issues, in my opinion, this ultimately stands as a good example of the type of conversation that things like this can create. We're talking more about homelessness because of something like this, and maybe that's a good start.
1: And yeah, I mean, I get the criticism. I think when you take something that's as serious and complex as homelessness and poverty, and you just kind of gamify it, uh, I can see how it would cause people to maybe look at the real life situations in the world that we have going on and just kind of, maybe see them as not as serious or maybe see them as something that it's maybe easier to get out of than it really is
0: and the sims should maybe just stay in its lane the sims game that i played was i think it was one of the first rated 14 games, maybe teen i think that's what they rated games teen a big t on it it was called sims hot date and uh basically you were just trying to get as much money as possible so you could buy a huge hot tub for your house it was shaped like a heart. Man, I
1: accidentally caught one of my Sims' houses on fire, and uh, quickly realized <laughs> that I had forgotten to install any fire safety measures, oh, uh, no. such as smoke detectors <laughs> uh, and uh, fire extinguishers. See, you had to watch them. Burn yeah, alive. so I mean, it was pretty traumatic. Like you actually saw them die.
0: Did you sit there and it watch them? It stuck with off, me. Yeah. How off? could you look
1: away? I mean, I had built this family. <laughs> now I was watching them being taken from me right in
0: front of me. And that's it. Thanks for listening to yet another episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, thepodcast.com Music for commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For jasis and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.